0: Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Great to be with you. Um, just help you make sense of today, it is Halloween. It is Halloween. If you're wondering why there are costumes out on the prom, etc. But rather than dwelling on Halloween, we are going to continue our Jesus and Sexuality series. Um, something I think we find a little bit more interesting, right? I mean, this is, this is stuff that interests us. And last week, um, and I know the guests here, so I want to quickly bring you up to speed. Last week, we talked about the fact that this sexual desire we all have is powerful. And so we need to think about how we respond to it. And the one response is to fear it, is to fear it. And we put a little equation saying, you know, when you fear this thing, you often try to put moral standards in place. You apply your willpower and you hope that that'll create holiness. But there are many difficulties with you this and reflecting our own lives. We admit that the equation doesn't often work out like that. Often it actually doesn't result in holiness. It results in failure. I think... In particular, of some people that you know maybe did a deal with Jesus in their life. They said, "Okay, Jesus, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give give this to you, and I'm gonna exert a lot of willpower, and then you're gonna bring someone across my path." Years from now, I'm doing a deal with you, Jesus, and it's been years, and that person hasn't come along yet, and and the heartache of that um, is something that's real, uh, and and often, it, although we were we were trying to do a deal with Jesus, we actually weren't weren't often aware of His grace to us, not just in the provision of someone later, but right now in our lives today. So it's, it's, with, it's with a lot of pain that you might identify with that as being a primary response that you've had during your life. The second response could be the following, that you just follow your sexual desires. The equation here is if you've got a desire and there's someone else who consents, just go for it. That's what's going to lead to freedom. And we've, we've tried that as a society all over the place, but I'd say that if you do look around uh, the answer isn't freedom. It's actually a lot of disillusionment. Um, here are a group of people that didn't do a, a deal with Jesus. Kind of just said, "No, I'm going to go do whatever I want," but yet on reflection, look back and say there have been a lot of wounds inflicted on myself and on others. And the question right now then is to ask: Well, does Jesus have something else to offer? Does Jesus offer us something different? And the answer is yes. The Answer is yes. He asks us to a- answer this question: Who am I becoming? As I steward the sexual desire I have, who am I becoming? Because you're not created, I mean, you're not a coincidence. You are created. You have been made with a design and with a purpose in the image of God. And therefore, like every other area of your life, you offer it up to Jesus and you say, Jesus, form me, shape me, help me to know what it means to be made in your image. And it will go a little bit like this, that you get a vision for what God intended as the inventor of sexual desire, as the creator of heaven and earth, what did he intend? What's the vision for our sexual desire? What what can the Holy Spirit do in us to help us live that vision out? And then what practices can we put in place that'll lead to restoration? Because the truth is, all of us are either victims or victimizers in this area of our lives, and so we all need restoration. But ultimately, restoration might just be getting us back to kind of the starting point. No, transformation is what's on God's heart for us. And so that's the focus for today. We're going to be looking at what Jesus taught on marriage, and in particular saying, okay, what's the vision for marriage? How does the Holy Spirit empower marriage? And how, how could we practice some things to see our marriages flourish? And now in the room today, I know there are lots of different people, right? Straight off the bat. I know that there are people who are single, and today is like, a, oh, man, now you're reminding me I'm single. There's a lot of pain. Maybe you're single, and you say, no, I'm actually leaning in. I'm, I'm grateful to kind of get the opportunity to learn. Uh, perhaps you're engaged. You're sitting here today, and I think we do have Laureen and Jeremy, hey? You guys at the back there. Well done, guys. These guys are engaged. I know about you guys being engaged, and um, great excitement. Jeremy's with another great church, Josh, Josh Jen, in our city, and so Laureen's going to be going off there and joining that church family, and for you guys and others that you might know, I want to pop up a slide at the back here. This is our pre-marriage course. It's our—it's something I can't talk a lot about today, but there is a whole course online, invite friends and family. It's open to anyone in our city who's saying, I'm about to make a massive thing. What is, what is the vision for this? And this course is something that opens your eyes to what you're getting yourself into. I also know, obviously, that there are people who are married here. They might be married hanging in there by a thread. There's a crisis. There's a pain. Maybe there's not that crisis, but deep down inside, there's just a level of boredom that says, is this it? Or well, perhaps there married couples here today that are doing the work of seeing the beautiful difference that is expressed in marriage, and are saying, we're doing the work, help us continue that work. There are people that are divorced that feel the pain of that, that kind of could've, would've, should've. And I think there are all of us that ourselves have had parents who experienced all these things themselves and, and kind of are living our lives in reaction to what we experienced, our own families of origin. So right here today, there is such a huge span of people. And I wanna say that we as a church are gripped by this metaphor of church as family, brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers. And so whilst I'm not able to cover everything in one sort of sitting here this Sunday, we're gonna continue for a few weeks, we're gonna have ministry time afterwards, opportunity for Q and A here. Let's be a family that trusts each other and keeps building together as we talk about this important issue. And now regardless, regardless of where you find yourself, the church is the one place you can ask your questions and gather, and the church the one place I hope that you will hear the vision that Jesus has. You will hear what Jesus has to say, and you'll see the connection between what Jesus has to say about our sexual desire and how it is that that is best expressed in marriage, as Jesus defined it. Man and woman joined together in covenant. That is the safe place for sex to be expressed. And as I prepared, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to live near Patpaten, and some evenings, I got out on the prom, and as I was walking, I saw the lighthouse, the Green Point lighthouse, doing its thing. And luckily, the foghorn wasn't doing its thing, so the, the walk was quite pleasant. But the one thing I noticed about the Green Point lighthouse, a picture should appear there is the lighthouse shines um, out into the ocean, but as soon as the light tries to swing back onto the land, there's like a shield that's been put up. Essentially, anyone living in South Seas or those apartments doesn't want a light blaring in their eyes every eight seconds. It makes complete sense. And I just felt God say to me at that time, you know, when we gather and we look at what Jesus has to teach us about sexuality, let's not put shields up that protect our lives. You know what that feels like. It's like you're sitting there and you go, oh, I hope my spouse heard that point, you know, or, oh, that couple that we, we've been praying for, I really wish they, they're listening to this message at this point. I hope the single people aren't saying, oh, man, this is like a wasted Sunday. No, I know, all in our hearts put up shields. And I thought, just God saying, no, 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 take that shield down, allow the light, obviously to speak to everyone else, but allow it primarily to speak to you, because this is a message for every single one of us. All of us need to see that vision that Jesus has. And we're going to compare and contrast what Jesus has to teach with the story of South Africa at the moment. I say the secular story, is it's a story that excludes God. It kind of says, no, to everyone, you choose. That's kind of the story. That's how our constitution has been laid out. And so I'm saying it's a story, but there are many, many stories. Actually, and I want to quickly just capture the vision that we as South Africa as a nation have for marriage. Uh, South Africa is one of the most liberal constitutions in the world. In South Africa, you can get married to any combination of men and women. Uh, legally, polygamy in South Africa is an option. One man can marry a many women. And quite interestingly, here's a photo <coughs> um, earlier this year in June There's a green paper out on marriage, and it has been pointed out that at the moment we're a little bit unconstitutional because men can marry multiple women, but a woman cannot currently marry multiple men. And it's called polyandry, and it has now been put in the green paper that that will change, that from finalization of this uh, new marriage act, women will be able to marry multiple men. It's been fascinating to watch the commentary on this. One commentator has four wives. He is a reality TV star. Um, following his, his relationships, and he speaks out against, he says, many people will say I'm being a hypocrite by saying that a woman shouldn't marry multiple men, but I'm not going to be silent on the issue, I believe it is un-African, that's, that's this particular gentleman's view. It is fascinating to look at how our definition plays out, and, and that, is, um, that is how South Africa has defined marriage. See, scratching below the the surface level, I'd say that most of us say whatever form it takes, it should be about happiness. It's about entering into a contract with someone else who who makes you happy. (coughs) And you partner together to get a good deal out of this. But truthfully, it's getting harder and harder to find someone that will do that over the long haul. (coughs) The average stats in South Africa show that men are getting older before they get married. I will pop up here but you can see the average age was 36. The latest stats from SA say that um, most men will marry for the first time at age 37. Likewise, women are getting older, the first um, marriage often happening at the age of 33. <coughs> this longer waiting period has meant that many people are saying, look, it's unrealistic to wait for sex before marriage, and so uh, only at marriage, and so we will you know, do what we need to do. Uh, we don't wanna be oppressed with anyone telling me what to do with my sexuality as I take um, this decision to delay marriage. Now, the the obvious thing to say is that sex results in children, right? That's how how children come about. In many ways, we kind of think about these two issues separately, but if we put them together and we say, okay, what is it doing to define marriage in any way we want and to essentially say that sex doesn't belong exclusively in marriage? That attitude and that story, along with a horrendous history of migrant labor in our country, has created a fatherlessness crisis in South Africa. And I did some reading on it, and the United Nations report has a fascinating comparison across different continents and countries. And do you know that globally, 75% of children under the age of 15, 75% of children under the age of 15, live with both a mother and a father? Okay. In South Africa, what do you think that number is? It'll appear now. 32%. Only 30, 32% of South African children grow up with the mom and the dad in the home. Have a look at the rest of the stats. You'll see one 4% stay with just the dad, 42% with the mother, and a whole fifth, 21% of children in South Africa don't live with either parent and are raised by aunts and uncles and grannies and grandpas. I don't, I don't really know how you found yourself here today, but I think anyone looking at it would say that is a crisis. That is a problem. That creates carnage. I would suggest we've got a vision for marriage. We've got multiple visions for marriage, but they're not working, and we see the pain of it. So what is, what is Jesus' vision? What does he offer? Remember, this is a man who was killed, not because he was a nice guy that did lots of, you know, quaint teachings. No, he was killed because he subverted power structures. He taught another way of living that, were, that, was, that was anathema to, to those leaders at the time. They couldn't handle it, and so they moved against him. And there's one example in Matthew 19, we've looked at it already, but let me remind you, they, he's trying to get tricked out by the, by the leaders, the Pharisees, and they try to ask him a question around divorce, saying, you know, is it legal for a man to get divorced? They're trying to trick him. And this is how Jesus answered, this subversive storyteller. This is what he says, he answers with a story. He says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What, therefore, God has joined together. Let, no man, not, let not man separate. See, Jesus, at a time where he could have really redefined marriage and gone crazy, he goes back to the beginning. He goes back to Genesis 1, and he says there was a beginning. There's a creator. There's a designer. And that's massive. I mean, that is actually the ultimate point of departure. If you're looking at this whole area of sexuality, you've got to settle this thing first. Is there a God or isn't there? That, that's the big issue, right? And then you can answer all the other questions that come down, tumbling down from there. I mean, I'm a pastor, I lecture at UCT, I'm bumping into people, and as soon as people generally find out I'm a pastor, one of the early questions is, okay, so what do you think about gay marriage? It's like, it's almost teed up as the question of like, are you cool or are you a bigot? Like, let's just find out. And it's a, it's, it, it, it's a bit like the Pharisees asking Jesus the question. It's kind of the modern day equivalent. And what I like to do, and maybe you can adopt this as a practice, is I say, hey man, thank you f- for being interested in this very important question. But, and, it's, and it's quite a personal question, right? I mean, we're talking about what people do with their sexuality, this very powerful part of what it means to be human. And I mean, this is personal. This is like, this is big. This has massive implications. And so I, I want to find out right up front, have you got time to talk about this? Because I really, wa- really w- want to talk about it, but let's set aside some time for it. And then secondly, you know what I found discussing this thing? Is that often we can create more heat than light. We can judge each other. We can cancel each other. We can go ballistic instead of just listening to each other. So besides setting time, would you, would you be open to being open? Would you be open to listening to each other not canceling each other and really having a good discussion about it? And nine times out of ten, people are like, oh, okay, yeah, let's do it. Let's, let's set aside the time. Let's set it aside a time and let's look at truth. And at that point... I don't jump in and answer the question. I say, look, here's how I see the world. I believe that there is a God who created it, and the more we understand him and his design, the more we understand life. There's clarity. Truth brings about clarity, and clarity is so good for us. And I've noticed that this God is gracious and loving, and he fills my life up with his spirits. And I do fall, of course. I'm not perfect. Although I'm a priest, I actually have a priest, right? That's the thing that gets me up in the morning. I have a priest, not the fact that I am a priest. And he renews me by his grace and his forgiveness, And his love blesses me to be a blessing to others, and that defines how I live my life. And I look to him, not just around sexuality, coming from an all-boys school where, quite frankly, I was shaped to be a pervert. I bring that before him, and I ask him to renew me in being sacrificially loving towards my wife. And that's the point of departure. And so if you don't agree with that story, we are going to probably be at each other's necks very quickly because we're not even close to each other understanding the origins of life and the meaning and purpose. And I've had some fascinating conversations on pa- a place I can take you around the GSB and around the city with people. And we've really genuinely understood each other and gone, so bro, I'm blessing you because I've been blessed. I'm not here to, I'm not here to, to kind of uh, create heat with you. I'm, I'm here to share what God's done in my life. And, and I'd say to you that that is an opportunity to be like Christ in our city at the moment. And when you do that, you, th- you would say things like, well, if you are looking at him and you want to teach what well, Jesus taught, there's male and female. There are these distinct roles, equality, but yet beautiful difference. And you'll notice in marriage, it's about leaving and cleaving. You honor your family of origin, but you're creating a whole new family that's going to give expression to the love you have for one another. And as two become one, what's happening here? God's unifying you, and God's joining you together, and hopefully over time, not always, but you can, you can out of that love, create and, and have children that you cherish and love, and God has Joined you together and let man not separate. You see, this was a teaching that Jesus, the, the kind of normally subversive, put in play. And he challenged them. Paul came along later in an early church. He, in Ephesians 5, wrote this. He said, therefore, quotes in Jesus, quotes in Genesis. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And he says, this mystery is profound. I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. He quotes Jesus but he expands that vision. He says, do you know that this marriage thing is actually about that, Christ and his church? And he's saying, this mystery is profound, but that's what I'm referring to. We're gonna look at this passage again, but please absorb this, that when we understand marriage, we better understand Christ and the church. And actually, if we understand what Christ was doing when he laid down his life as a servant leader, and when he laid down his life as someone submitting to the Father, as a strong helper, we get an understanding of what our marriage roles are. We're both, husband and wife, meant to reflect Christ in our marriage to one another. And so this morning, I'm not trying to police the world. That is not what I'm up to. I'm trying to show you that if you look to Jesus Christ, this is what He would be teaching you, distinct roles within marriage, beautiful mutual submission, equality, but distinction. Tim Keller, whose book I recommend, I'll pop it up here. He writes, Mean your Marriage Whenever We Walk With map Couples Towards Marriage, or you're in a marriage and you want to go deeper, or you're trying to understand what this is all about. He's got a great book, Mean your Marriage. He's also got a devotional seal in your heart, which I've been working through this year. Um, I, I didn't want to use it when I prepared because all you would have been hearing then is Tim Keller for the rest of today. <laughs> I thought let me actually just share a little bit of my life as well, but I highly recommend those to you. This is what he had to say, along with his wife, Kathy, who wrote this book. They say, there are all sorts of great institutions and human enterprises that the Bible doesn't address or regulate. And so we are free to invent them and operate them in line with the general principles for human life that the Bible gives us. All kinds of institutions can do what you want, but marriage is different. As the Presbyterian Book of Common Worship says, God established marriage for the welfare and happiness of humankind. Marriage did not evolve in the late Bronze Age as a way to determine property rights. At the climax of the Genesis accounts of creation, we see God bringing a woman and a man together to unite them in marriage. The Bible begins with a wedding of Adam and Eve and ends in the Book of Revelation with a wedding of Christ and the church marriage is God's idea. It is certainly also a human institution, and it reflects the character of the particular human culture in which it is embedded. But the concept and roots of human marriage are in God's own action, and therefore what the Bible says about God's design for marriage is crucial. So just to say, what is your vision for marriage? Which story do you believe? Is it a hybrid? Is it a cut and paste? My only comment to you would be that that hybrid kind of approach promises the best of both worlds, but very often leads leads you to a lack of clarity and confusion that can hurt. Your sexual desire, I put it to you, is too powerful to leave this area kind of unexamined and inconsistently lived out. Perhaps the best way to see the distinction between these two stories is to look at the difference between a contract and a covenant, Uh, a marriage as a partnership or marriage as a deep union, And I actually go to uh, Chief Rabbi, Jonathan Sachs, who passed away a few years ago, and he gave a series of talks, also sort of coming out of the Genesis understanding of, of marriage. And he wasn't talking about marriage in particular, he was talking about a broader themes, but I wanted to just tease out the difference between a covenant and a contract with you. So, over to our Chief Rabbi. He says, economics and politics are arenas of mediated principled competition, principled competition for money or power where individuals struggle to survive and beats others, but social goods like knowledge, trust, learning, friendship, and love inherently work differently. The more I share, the more I have. Social goods don't operate by the logic of scarcity and zero-sum games, so where those goods are involved, we should promote cooperation rather than competition. That cooperation can take two forms, a contract or a covenant. In a contract, two parties, each focused on personal interest, come together for a specific purpose from which both benefit for limited time. In a covenant, two people come together with a moral commitment to stay together in good and bad times for the greater good and by doing so are transformed. Contracts are about interest. Covenants are about identity. Contracts benefit. Covenants transform. You see the difference? What vision do you have, contract or covenant? Leanne and I started dating uh, 15 years ago, almost to the day, and very early on, she painted a vision for our marriage, and she used the DVD to do it. The DVD was The Notebook. (coughs) I'm also noticing around schools a lot of boys called Noah, right? And I dare say this movie, Instrumental. Noah uh, meets Ali and declares his undying love for her. He, He pours it out big time, he's on Ferris wheels, he's on lakes, you'll see all kinds of nice pictures of how he is romancing the girl. And then finally, you have this scene where they are in later years, she's got dementia, and he's reading from her notebook the story of their romance. And for a brief moment, she comes out of her dementia, recognizes him, and they dance to their song before she lapses again into dementia. And he repeats this every day as they relive their love for one another. Now, that is a vision. For marriage. The only problem is it skips 50 years, 50 years of unbelievably hard work as they work out the beautiful difference that what it means to be a man and a woman, right? It just kind of goes, oh, look at the romance, look at him reading to her in dementia, good luck, you know, good luck. And you might think, Paul, that's your unique kind of vision through the notebook. I looked up the top wedding song in the world right now. It is authored by the poet Edward Christopher Sheeran, It is called Thinking Out Loud, and here are the lyrics. When your legs don't work like they used to before, and I can't sweep you off of your feet, will your mouth still remember the taste of my love? Will your eyes still smile from your cheeks? And darling, I will be loving you till we're 70. And baby, my heart could still fall as hard at 23, and I'm thinking about how people fall in love in mysterious ways. Maybe just a touch of a hand. Oh, me, I fall in love with you every single day. No, 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 no. But this is the song, right? This is the vision many of us have. We want the old people dying together. We want the spark, the romance. But we have no clue, really no clue, how to connect those two events. Well, that's why we're going to talk about practices now. We're going to talk about practices. And we're going to end then with an invitation for the Holy Spirit to empower us as we do this. And so the vision of this institution of marriage, mutual submission, it gives us a, a what and a why. Now we're talking about the how. How does this actually play out? And Ephesians 5, where Paul talks about this, is very helpful because at that time, the first century, Aristotle had widely used household codes, and they were essentially helping regulate relationships around husbands and their wives, husbands and children, and husbands and the people that work for them. Their employees. And this was kind of like laid out as to how it should happen. Let me tell you how Aristotle saw it. He said, No. Wives, serve your husbands. Children, serve your dad. You know, employees, look after your master. I mean, that was clear. That's the line, that's the power dynamic. And along comes Paul and he says, Whoa, 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 there's something gonna be subverted here. There's something that needs to change. So let's read together around what practices were intended for our marriages. This is Paul writing, he says, Be filled with the spirit. Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So that's as Christ follows together. That's how we get along. We submit to one another because of God's goodness in our lives. Then he applies it to the marriage. He says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife. Even as Christ is the head of his church, I mean His body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing. That she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies he who loves his wife loves himself for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as christ does the church because we are members of his body now pause in there to our ears today there's some words here like submission that hit us hard and we need to go back into the first century understand a bit more of those household codes and then walk it back to us today in seapoint see, at the time in Ephesus, there was Artemis. She was a female goddess, and there was a massive statue. Picture Cape Town Stadium, but on steroids. And people would gather to celebrate her and, 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 would, and would sleep with temple prostitutes as a way of worshiping. This was a view that, that was kind of expressing this work hard, play hard culture. Does that, does that sound familiar? A city built around working hard and playing hard. And in this time, of the view of women was that almost that they were almost people. They were kind of around, but not fully accepted. And that was in the Jewish culture. and the Greek culture, it was even more so. Uh, female babies were left uh, out in the open to, and would die of exposure. Uh, men would typically be allowed to run amok and, and essentially would uh, have wives much younger than themselves. And what might strike us today as being like way outdated at that time was actually radically, radically against the grain. Let's see verse, in, uh, in verse 21, this call to mutual submission. All men and women called to submit to one another, the spirit-filled submission. You see, in, in the sweep of the whole book, what Paul was saying is Jesus Christ is uniting heaven and earth. He's starting a new kingdom, and he's talking about how Jesus does this. All all ground is level at the foot of the cross. There's an incredible uniting that takes place as we become spirit-filled. The operating system becomes one of treating others as more significant than yourself. It's like a slam against self-centeredness. That's the operating system Jesus comes with. He says, I come from the Father, this relational being that out of the love shared by the Father, Son, and Spirit created man and woman. In the same way, because you made an image, we want you out of your love for one another to go out and love others and submit to their needs. And so the goal of marriage then is, is love, which is defined not as you do this for me, but is defined by self-denial and sacrificial love. And he therefore says, so in order to do that, here are the practices that are going to lead to that. Okay, this is how you close the 50-year gap in the notebook, right? This is how you can actually do the Ed Sheeran thing for the, for the long haul. And kind of intuitively, husbands, you need to lay down your lives. A culture that's telling you everyone needs to serve you, that's not the direction. No, you need to lay down your life, just as Christ laid down his life for the church. At what point did Jesus bail? At what point did Jesus go, nah, look, a little over the top right now? He went to a cross. He went to the the crudest form of crucifixion. At no point did Jesus go, tap out, cons list much longer than the pros list. I'm out, right? This is the call for husbands. This is the standard. We to be like Christ, a servant leader who lays down his life. And you might say, Paul, that's an isolated incident. No, no, no. Let's go look at the church in Corinth, a church gone wrong, a church with all kinds of weird things happening, messy church on steroids. And here we read Paul doing something quite incredible in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to the husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And all the guys are like, yeah, that's the one, that's the verse. But Paul goes on. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. The consistent teaching that there is a unity that comes here, which is so radically countercultural at that time, people would have gone, what is this? This is not at all appropriate. This is against nature. This is against custom." Husbands, lay down your life for your wife. She has rights on your life, just as much as you got rights on hers. This is not talking about women and men generally. This is talking about marriage, be clear. Husband and wife, trying to work out the practices that give expression to the vision God has for marriage. And likewise, the call on husbands is to lay down their life, same for wives. You see that, wife, submit to your husband. Just as Christ laid down his, his will to the Father and came to the cross together, Empowered by the Spirit to do this rescuing work. There's a call here for a wife to be Christ like in her submission, to be Christ like in becoming a strong helper in the marriage. Whilst husbands are called to be servant leaders, wives are called to be strong helpers. At this point, again, it's worth noting at no point does this mean abuse in marriage is allowed, whether physical or emotional. And if that is the case, please speak to us. There's forgiveness that needs to be extended, but there's also legal action that is appropriate. And we as a community want to protect anyone who finds themselves in this abuse of the teaching and misuse of the teaching. But here's the thing, laying down your life for one another in marriage is doing what Christ did for His church. Those are the practices that start to build a deep satisfaction and a deep joy. If I think of this area of sex in particular, I think of Joyce Meyer who who tells an interesting uh, story. She says there's a new husband shop in New York. You can go and get yourself a husband, ladies, fascinating. First floor you walk in, there's a husband there and he has a job, very exciting. Now here's the deal, you can keep going up the floors. Once you go up a floor, you can never come back down. So once you're up a floor, you can never come back down and you can decide, do you take the husband with a job or do you keep going? And most women say, look, this is exciting, he's got a job but I'm going up one more floor. Goes up one more floor, here's a man with a job and he's good with children getting better. But ladies, do you stay or do you go? You go. You go. Got a job, good with children, and he's good looking, ridiculously good looking, whatever that means for you. Things are really looking good. Do you tap out at this point, ladies? I mean, what do you do? Do you go up one more floor? What do you do? And at this point, you obviously go up one more floor because you're like, let's just see. And up there you go, and there he is. Job, good with kids, good looking. Helps out around the home. I mean, come on. This is... Fantastic. This is as good as it gets. I mean, the ladies at this point are going, I'm interested. I'm interested. There's still, however, one more floor. What do they do? They think, come on. And they go up to the top floor. And they're told, your visitor number 30,333,000, please take a ticket. There are no men on this floor. (laughs) This floor only exists to prove that women are never satisfied. And all the men are like, yeah, yeah, this is it. This is true. It doesn't matter how hard I put into the servant leadership thing. We just never arrive. Well, good news, men. There's a store where you can find a wife. It's also in New York. You've got to travel, but it's worth it. Floor number one, you walk in, same rules. Here's a lady who loves sex. Very exciting. But you decide, okay, I'm going to go up one more floor. Let's see. Here's a lady who loves sex and has money. Floors three to five have never been visited. <laughs> and what you have at this point is, just in a microcosm, the beautiful difference that is designed here that somehow men, in order to feel emotional intimacy, would love to have sex, to then kind of, ah, oh, now remember, there's all this stuff going on, but we're unified. Woman, on the other hand, want the emotional journey and the connection points to then be consummated in the act. And so you put these two very different people together, and I'm speaking in broad general terms, of course, with all the caveats, but how is it so hard to get this right? What is going on? And that's something we need to work out and keep talking about. I think about um, my, re- my relationship with Leanne and how it points, we've, we've looked at each other and gone, we love each other, we love God, so why are we sabotaging this? <laughs> like, why, why are we not, why don't you just do what I, I, what I think? And it's like, Jesus, I mean, why don't you just do what I think? Well, it's because we're different, fundamentally different. And when you look at most divorces, they happen between the eight, five to nine years of marriage. The seven-year itch thing's real. Between five and nine, that's true in Africa as well. The majority of marriages do dissolve within the first five to nine. If they're gonna dissolve, that's when it happens. And I think that's the point, when you realize this person is different to me, and they're not gonna change. And you fundamentally got to decide, do I push through and do I embrace beautiful difference and do I learn what what it's like to serve one another in that or don't I? And do I go and look for it somewhere else? And he has the problem. When you go look for it somewhere else, after seven years, you will find the exact same thing coming up. You see, it's not about guilt trips or condemnation. It's about looking at the stories we believe and saying, are these truly Stories which lead to flourishing and serving others, or are they stories that are actually self-serving and will destroy us in the long haul? And again, invitation to all our men for the next Tuesday nights, we're gonna be gathering to better understand our sexuality and how that can be used to serve our lives rather than something that can make us slaves. So. Let's go back quickly to the vision part as I wrap up this practices thing. Remember, Paul wrapped up that Ephesians thing by saying this. He said, a man shall leave his father and mother hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. And then he says this, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Men who are married, are you owning the call of God in your marriage to love your wife? You are the only legitimate source of romance in your life. Only legitimate source. No one else should be buying her flowers with a wink on their face. That's up to you, and if you're not doing it, why not? And can I also say, men, if you find yourself saying, submit, woman, at any point, you've already lost. It does not work <laughs> that well. So Rigby Wallace reminded me, he said, authority is like a, a bar of soap. If the more you use it, the less of it you have. There are better ways to, to be a beautiful difference together. And woman, are you owning this call to respect your husbands in marriage. As clumsy as they will be in trying to give expression to their emotions and their romance, I don't think it works to kind of go, oh, this is the best you got? You call this an anniversary, you know? Disrespect just doesn't work in marriage, and it sends you away from each other when you should be called to bring together. Men in particular, can I encourage you and women, to bring all the energy you bring to your other areas of your life, your, your consulting careers, your workplace, bring all that energy to your marriage. Some things Leanne and I have done, we've, we've done a reverse engineering exercise where we sit down, and we say, okay, where does God have us? What are we going in? Let's reverse engineer. What do our days look like to get us there? All that energy you use on two-by-two two matrices at work, use them in your marriage. Bring that level of energy. Uh, we've got little ways of helping us cope. Things like, at some point, Leanne will look at me and go, are you being serious? Which is her code for, we can fight about this, or you can actually think about what you're saying, I appreciate it because it helps me understand, well, I've, I've crossed the line, but she's not going to tell me that straight away. She's going to be like, oh, are you being serious, and then I can decide if I want to die on that hill or not. We'll, we'll, we'll see. Well, how about this? Often men, it's a stereotype, but it's true. We listen to solve the problem, and we're shocked that our wives don't want the solution. They just want us to listen. And so a simple thing could be to ask, sorry, just to clarify, do you want comfort or do you want a solution? Do you want listening or do you want problem solving? And, and really, just that alone will help many, many marriages in the room. And finally, why don't you just sit down, take an hour today, and say, man, what's wrong with our marriage? Ask yourself the question. I mean, There's all four questions. What should we cease doing? Like, what's wrong? Let's just, let's just cease. What, what's good? What should we celebrate? What's confusing? Where do we need clarity? Finally, what's missing? And that's a call to create something. Pour your energy into this. There's so many practices. There's a community that wants to get around you. It's a beautiful difference that can be expressed. Philip Yancey said this, he said, Puritans called marriage the little church within the church, sorry, it's a misquote there, a place to test and also develop spiritual ca- character. I persevere in the difficult times in my marriage for the same reason I persevere in the difficult times of my faith because I believe that both touch something of eternal significance. Rigby Wallace uh, said this, he said, I've never seen marriages fail, which is like, what? <laughs> like, I've never seen marriage, like, that's obviously wrong. He says, no, I've seen people fail the institution of marriage, but I've never seen the institution of marriage fail people. It's called to lay down our lives for each other. Philip Yancey again says this, he says, marriage strips away the illusions about sex pounded into us daily by the media. Few of us live with oversexed supermodels. We live instead with ordinary people, men and women who get bad breath, bad odors, body odors, sorry, and unruly hair who menstruates and experience occasional impotence, who have bad moods and embarrass us in public, who pay more attention to our children's needs than their own. We live with people who require compassion, tolerance, understanding, and an endless supply of forgiveness. So do our partners, and so such is the ironical power of sex. It lures us into a relationship that offers to teach us what we need far more, which is sacrificial love. So we have a vision. And we have practices to live out the sacrificial love. But how do we get over our self-centeredness? And this is the shortest point by far. It's an invitation for us to respond by inviting the Holy Spirit, which we're gonna do now as we enjoy communion together. Do you see, Paul started his whole teaching on this Ephesians, and I've had to fly through it. We did two weeks on it, last, or two years ago now, and so there's more talks on it that we can um, send out on our WhatsApp link. But he started all of this by saying this, be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with God's promised spirit. Jesus said, I'm going, it's good that I'm going because I can send the helper, the comfort, I can send the spirit. Let the spirit shine light in our Just like that lighthouse <laughs> puts a shield up, we're gonna drop our shields and go, come Holy Spirit because in and of myself, I can't do this for someone else. And you know that the metaphor used throughout scripture is this metaphor of marriage, of this deep oneness. Jonathan Grant's in another book I highly recommend, recommend called Divine Sex. It is awkward to read in coffee shops around Cape Town, but it's well worth it. He writes about the bridal practices at the time, which is relevant as we come to enjoy communion together. He said, you essentially would have a wedding spread over three stages and would last about a year. The first stage was a price was paid. A price was paid uh, for the bride. And that would then be an engagement period lasting for about a year. And it's, it's pretty hectic. You can only call off the wedding if there's infidelity, which is why Joseph was in such a bind with Mary on their way to Bethlehem, because he was like, oh, but we were engaged, now she's with child. Okay, so that's that period. The second period then, having got engaged, is that the bridegroom would go to his parents' house and he would prepare a room for the bride. He would pre- prepare a room. And Jesus himself taught this, saying, oh, I'm going, but I'm going to prepare a room for you. Speaking about us as his bride. He said, I'm gonna go and prepare a room for you. And all of us get all excited about, Oh, I don't know what my room's gonna be like. <laughs> like, woo-hoo, many rooms, like he's marrying all of us. I mean, this is what he's doing. He's preparing a place for us for all eternity. And then finally he comes to collect his bride. And the bride has 10 maidens, typically, or more maidens with her. And they're waiting and they're eagerly celebrating. He comes at midnight, he sweeps her off and they walk back to that room that's been prepared for. Her. Jesus again taught about this. And he said, you know, there are 10 maidens. Five of them weren't prepared. Five of them hadn't thought about it. And they ran out of oil and they went to the shop to go get oil. And so when I arrived, there were only actually five that were there. And his whole warning was, this life you are in has a destiny, it has a trajectory. I'm coming as your bridegroom bring you back to a room I've prepared for you. You don't have to wait for that day. You can live in anticipation of that day. And so I've given you this communion meal as a way of both celebrating but also warning you about me coming back. Will you be ready? Because I am coming again. You see, when Jesus comes to unite heaven and earth, the image given is that of a wedding feast. In Revelation 19, this is what we read. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. The Lamb who was slain for the world, the God who rescued us, is now coming to bring His bride home. He says, His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. You might say, Paul, I have been applying myself in this area. I have been diligent, and I'm yet to find a spouse. And I'd say to you, Jesus knows. He sees your righteous deeds, and these will be celebrated one day. You might say, Paul, I have messed it up all over the show. You don't know what I've done. There's no hope for me. No, no, there is. Because your bridegroom is preparing a way, and he's coming. And your call is to be waiting for him. and to, In anticipation, live out a spirit-filled life. Will you stand with me? We're going to call the band up now, and there's an invitation to come and enjoy communion. If you'd like to, uh, please do so. Don't, um, don't eat yet or drink. Just take it and then go back to your place. There are tables um, here at the front to collect and some at the back. If you don't feel comfortable, that's fine. But otherwise, please do join us, and then I will lead us in a response together. Come and collect the elements, please. give me a time of response, which is confession, uh, communion, as well as celebration. Let's take a time now just to confess the truth that every single one of us has not had the vision that has been described today. We certainly haven't had practices aligned with that and are in need of restoration and transformation. We've lacked the Holy Spirit and we've been part to reliance on our own means. How does God look at that? Well, God... Sends his son. He's relentless in his pursuit. He's relentless in his love. And he invites you now to confess your sins and to invite the Spirit. So do that now. Confess your need for him and invite the work of the Holy Spirit. makes confession powerful is that it can get us into a place of communion with God, to recognize that God knows everything about us, yet He chose to come and rescue us. See, part of why we struggle to confess is because the enemy comes in and compounds lies that take us away from running to God. The last thing we want to do is to run to God Because we've been told things like, well, this disqualifies you. This means you will never enjoy God's love and His smile and His favor. And what we can do at this moment is say, no, that is a lie. What you hold in your hands is proof that it's a lie because He sent His Son, His body broken for you and His blood shed for you. And at the wedding feast of the Lamb, on what basis do we get invited in? We get invited in by the grace of Jesus Christ. And so in our hands, we have an opportunity to once again enjoy communion where sin is a disease that separates us from God. The communion meal is again a reminder that heaven and earth have been united. As we take his body and as we drink the juice, we invite in his transforming work again freshly and we declare you are my Savior and my Lord. So let's do that together now. So after confession, communion, we now get to enjoy celebration. We get to enjoy celebration. This is the God who invented marriage, who invented all that sexual energy. He's the one who created this whole world, including you, and done His ways and for His glory. We have reason now to say worthy of every song we could ever sing, worthy of all the praise we could ever bring worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you. Let's celebrate together now.